Let's talk a little bit about new agents being tested in this disease. Tracy, can you present your patients? This was a 37-year-old firefighter from a town just west of Boston who presented acutely with a generalized seizure, but in retrospect had noted some subtle right-sided symptoms for a few weeks. Presented with a seizure, had a cranial MRI done, which showed this heterogeneously enhancing, ill-defined mass really straddling the motor strip, left frontal parietal lobe. So at that point, certainly had radiographic characteristics of high-grade glioma. Decision was made by the consulting surgeon not to do a resection given location. He was already symptomatic with some hemiparesis. So a biopsy was done, and at that point on the biopsy, it was an anaplastic astrocytoma. So the patient actually was enrolled on a clinical trial, RTOG 9813, and received radiation and timozolomide. Can you together. just clarify what anaplastic astrocytoma is? It's a form of a malignant glioma. Technically, it's a grade 3 astrocytoma, whereas glioblastoma is a grade 4 astrocytoma. It doesn't rise to the level of glioblastoma. The prognosis is somewhat better for an anaplastic astrocytoma than it is for a glioblastoma. For the most part, it's treated like a glioblastoma in terms of surgery, radiation, although chemotherapy is a little more controversial with anaplastic astrocytoma. So in any event, he was enrolled in a clinical trial, had stable disease for a period of time, and then about nine months afterwards had an increase in the size of the mass, which was symptomatic, more symptoms on his right side of hemiparesis. At that point, it was decided to do a biopsy just because he had just biopsy specimen before. We didn't have MGMT status in him. So a biopsy was done, and this is unusual, at least in our Department of Pathology. They're usually not willing to grade after prior radiation, but David Lewis actually called this a glioblastoma at the time of the rebiopsy, a grade 4 astrocytoma. So then he was enrolled on another clinical trial. This time he received selingitide. This was part of the NABIT study. So he received selingitide, which is this drug that targets integrins, two specific families of integrins that are expressed on endothelial cells. There's some idea that it might have direct anti-endothelial effects as well as anti-migratory effects on these cells. Before you go too much farther, can you talk a little bit more about integrins? It's on, I don't remember hearing much about that in other tumors. Right. So there are a family of receptors on cells that enable the cell to actually interact with the extracellular matrix. And this is one of the ways in which endothelial cells, by interacting with the matrix, binding to proteins in the matrix, can actually migrate and spread in the brain. So the integrins are cell surface receptors? The integrins themselves are on the cell surface, interact with these matrix proteins, and then enable the cell to, if you will, kind of infiltrate or crawl along the brain, parenchyma. And what exactly does selingitide do to that? So selingitide acts as a substrate for two of the receptors, two of these key receptors, and it then prevents that interaction and, in theory, prevents migration of these cells. It might also have some direct apoptotic effects on the cells themselves when it binds to these receptors. Now, at the time this patient went on the study, what was known about selingitide, and what kind of study was he actually put on phase two? This was a phase two study. So this was one of the earlier studies of selingitide. There had been a phase one which demonstrated that it was very well tolerated, very little toxicity, and the dose had been identified in a phase one study, so this was the follow-up phase two study. And this, again, is like a competitive or non-competitive inhibitor? 
Well, it's actually a peptide, so it just actually binds the receptors. I'm not sure about reversibility, but it mm. binds the receptors. I see. Okay. So what happened with him? So anyway, so he actually did extremely well. So he was one of these 10% on this trial that had a partial response. Actually, the tumor mass actually regressed somewhat, and he was on this study for 14 months. And this is oral or IV? It's IV, and it's twice a week. Twice a week. Right. Hmm. Right. He lived locally, would come in. The infusion was very quick, twice a week, so he was in and out pretty quickly. And your sense was he was actually having an active response? Oh, he definitely did. Hmm. He had a partial response, so more than a 50% reduction in the contrast-enhancing tumor. No toxicity? No toxicity in this patient. When you, None. When toxicity's been seen with this agent, what do you see? They've not really been seen. The yeah. escalation phase ones, in fact, didn't find an MTD. Hmm. No MTDs, but there have been things like fatigue and nausea reported with the drug, but it's really minimal. Right. So then what? So he did well for over a year on selingitide with this response. But then he again developed increasing weakness, enhancing mass, and he had an interval appearance of a satellite focus of enhancement, a nodule of tumor in the left frontal lobe, which was clearly outside of his original radiation field. So at that time, he was enrolled in another clinical trial, which was a phase two trial of a drug, sidirinib, for recurrent glioblastoma. Sidirinib is a oral receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's a pan-VEGF inhibitor. It also has some activity against other tyrosine kinases, including platelet-derived growth factor receptor, as well as CKIT. It's given every day. And this is a phase two trial, so he got a fixed dose of the drug. And unfortunately, he was a patient that had very little response. He had a little bit of initial reduction in his contrast enhancement. He had no clinical improvement and he had really substantial progression of his flare MRI sequence over about four months. Any side effects and toxicity? Yeah, so this class of agents, the oral TKIs, some of the things you see with them are hypertension, diarrhea, fatigue. Those are the big three. And for sidirinib, one of the factors that really you deal with with most patients is hypertension. More than half of the patients in our trial ended up being treated for hypertension, and you can effectively treat them. There's an algorithm for doing so, but most of them end up on an antihypertensive. What about bowel perforation, proteinuria? Proteinuria, you can see bowel perforation appears to be very low risk, probably even less than Avastin, but certainly proteinuria you can see. And how does this compare to some of the other VEGF TKIs? So there are a whole host of these now. They're being studied in brain tumors, vandetinib, vitalinib, there's sunitinib, of course, there's serafinib. If you look at the pharmacology of sidirinib, one of the features that stands out, and at least with respect to its contemporary sunitinib and serafinib, is that it appears to be a much more potent inhibitor of VEGFR2, at least in the preclinical pharmacology lab it does. That appears to be more potent. Some of these are certainly being studied in glioblastoma. Vitalinib has been studied in combination with imatinib. Vitalinib, that's PTK? PTK 7 That was the same thing that sort of tanked in colon cancer? Oral VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor, also potentially targeting platelet-derived factors as well. That's right. It's been studied in glioblastoma in the recurrent setting. It's been studied in the newly diagnosed setting, small studies, phase one, phase two studies. Again, modest activity, not as much activity as you see with some of the others. And my understanding is that the company is actually 
dropped the drug and probably will not further develop that drug. So I think that one's going to come off the list. So any toxicity that this patient experienced with sidirinib? He did experience certainly some fatigue with it and required some dose reduction for fatigue, some intermittent diarrhea, which also required an occasional drug holiday, taking the patient off, letting them clear up, and then putting them back on. That usually works. Any rash or are there any EGFR kind of issues? Yeah, so there are rashes also reported with this class of agent. There's something called erythrodysesthesia, which usually occurs in the palms and soles of the foot. It's usually a red, not a scaly rash, but it's painful. Kind of like serafinib? Yeah, that's right. And then also there's a curious, not a frank stomatitis, but a discomfort in the mouth that can develop with this class of agents. Again, uncommon, but sometimes you see it as well. So what happened then? So he didn't respond well to the drugs. So as I said, he had this flare progression. And then, for better or worse at that point, we ended up putting him on bevacizumab. And while he really didn't have a radiographic response to bevacizumab, he did stabilize and remained on the bevacizumab for about 11 months. The bevacizumab initially we combined with arena-tecan. And then he eventually progressed through that. And I think one of the interesting things about this is because he had this diffuse flare abnormality as MRI, we were interested in looking at his brain, and he did consent to an autopsy. And at the time of his death, he really had the most remarkable infiltration of tumor that our pathologist had ever seen, really throughout the entire left hemisphere, down into the basal ganglia, into the splenium of the corpus callosum, and then into the right hemisphere as well. The only lobe that didn't have tumor in it was the right frontal lobe. So kind of fit this pattern of this change on the flare, diffuse infiltration of tumor throughout his brain. But he lived about two years. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the two agents that he received. Let's start with selingitide. Can you kind of bring us up to date with the clinical research that's been done and is being done? So selingitide has been the subject of some trials in pediatrics, gliomas, as well as adults. In the adult setting, it's been studied in both recurrent disease as well as in newly diagnosed glioblastoma. I'd say the results are not overwhelming, at least in the recurrent setting, radiographic response, about 10% of patients, and the proportion of patients who are still without progression at six months, you know, on the order of about 15 to 20%. So certainly not a home run, but a few patients did respond. Then it was studied up front in terms of safety, feasibility, and dose in combination with radiation temozolomide. Again, it's very safe feasible to give it with radiation temozolomide. You're talking about the oral paper at ASCO now? Or? That's one of the papers. That's there are right. other studies like that? That's right. So that's the one I'm referring to is the NABTC study. So safe and feasible in newly diagnosed glioblastoma. The median overall survival, again, quite good. But then again, control arms and some of these other trials, quite good as well. So hard to read a lot into that. In any event, the drug is being further pursued. There is a randomized trial in newly diagnosed glioblastoma, adding it to the backbone of temozolomide and radiation in the subpopulation of patients who are MGMT methylated. This is phase three? Yeah. Hmm. When are they expecting to get that done? 
I'm not sure. I think that's a relatively new trial within the last year. I don't know what the target end date for that is. So, Tom, where are things heading with this agent? Right. So that trial is at least two to three years out. The effect sizes are modest, and so it's not clear what's going to be seen. To choose this methylated subgroup means that the outcomes are going to be better, which means the events are going to be more latent as well. There is also in the unmethylated patients a phase one dose escalation with multiple dosing during radiation treatment. The agent right now is twice per week. There are cohorts three times, four times, and will be five times per week in those unmethylated patients because of some preclinical data suggesting some mechanisms of radiation enhancement. But it's very, very safe, and it just begs for perhaps combinations with other agents. Invasion as an endpoint or as a therapeutic target has never really been studied very well. This is a candidate agent that presumably has some ability to influence tumor cell migration and may well be appealing for combination studies, say with drugs like bevacizumab or sidirinib, and those at least have been discussed, and those studies may well be placed. What about tissue predictors or response or any other predictors? Right. The only thing that really popped out, not that it was extensively evaluated in the original trials, but the only thing that's popped out is the methylation status, and there is a more robust signal for efficacy in the methylated subpopulation. It's not clear whether that's just due to the enhanced temidar effect. It appears that that somehow biologically defines a population that it seems to be better responding to these other agents as well. So it's not just predictive for Temidar response. I always think about the projections they talk about if they had used trastuzumab and didn't have a HER2 assay, that they wouldn't have seen anything. What do you think, Tim? Do you think there's something in here in terms of this pathway and this strategy? I hope so, but I don't know. I think that the signal that we've seen in the recurrent setting shows this minority of benefit And that's kind of where I look to just see, you know, is there really something here? I think there is something that's there. I'm not yet impressed by the signal I'm seeing in the upfront setting. Even in the methylated group, I'm not convinced that that is a substantial signal. So I guess one of the concerns would be that that study might be negative, yet this still might be a drug that would be of interest maybe in these combinations, especially with the difficulties we're finding when we inhibit VEGF. And there may be a role there. I hope it actually doesn't get dropped if negative in that upfront study, it would be my bias at this point that, again, based upon the phase two data, that the signal isn't quite strong enough. What about this mechanism, David, that's being attacked here? Are there other agents that look at it? Do you think it's a fruitful pathway to look at? So the anti-invasion, I think, makes a lot of sense, especially for patients on other anti-VEGF drugs. Bevacizumab, that's one of the things that, at progression, there's this diffuse pattern of recurrence that seems to go along the vasculature and it seems to co-opt the blood vessels. But it's an invasion and some of the combination studies of bevacizumab have looked at the strategy of giving bev plus an anti-invasive drug. So I think there's at least rationale behind that. Yeah, I have to say I'm impressed with the fact that this patient got treated with sidirinib. The response was... Well, he was on it for four months. And then failed, and then responded to bevacizumab. Well, certainly didn't have radiographic response to bevacizumab, but had stable disease for about 11 months. Right. And it was clearly progressing before that. That's right. right. Which I find interesting because it's been difficult for us to find the reverse, which is if you treat with avastin or bevacizumab first to have durable stabilization afterwards... Do you have any experience with sidirinib used after bevacizumab? None. Yeah, and we, it's hard because... We have the converse, which is right. using... And some of those patients actually do have some response with Avastin. Most would have kind of stable disease for a period of time with Avastin. 
What about the combination of, for example, an agent like sidirinib and bevacizumab? There have been some toxicity signals that have been seen with that kind of strategy in renal cell. That's right. I would be wary of that. I think the toxicity would probably be prohibitive in terms of combining them. There was some interest, as you point out, in doing that at NCI, and I think that with the toxicity that was seen, that was dropped. Jim, what's your take on this whole class of agents, the VEGF, TKIs, this issue of these kinds of cases where one causes a response, another doesn't? Where do you think that's heading? I think that's where there's a lot of promise in our field because a lot of the oral TKIs do inhibit other pathways. I've always been intrigued. Avastin is more pure with just inhibiting VEGF while other pathways upregulate that we have to understand which are the major drivers of resistance. Is it PDGF? Well, sidirinib inhibits that as well. So I'm actually very excited about it.